Hey guys, my name is Jason. I'm an alcoholic. Thank you. I love you guys too. And the energy and the love and the laughter in here is, is awesome. This is exactly what I needed. And I, I hope it's exactly what all you guys need. Uh, before we get started, um, is if anyone's here for their first Tiki Paw, never been here before, stand up. And for for all of those of you that are that didn't stand up, uh, let, let's make it our job this weekend to help everybody uh, who's never been here feel welcome and loved, because uh, that that's what Tiki Paw's done for me. And uh, there's a gentleman here who's this is Tiki Paw number 27. If you guys didn't realize, and there's a guy here that's been to all 27 in a row. Uh, Ron, stand up. Stand up. That will conclude the audience participation portion. <laughs> uh, thank you, guys. If uh, There's a lot of people that have a lot of love for Tiki Paw here and have been coming here for years and supporting us. So uh, ask around. This is my 10th uh, Tiki Paw, and I'm, I'm really grateful to be here, and I'm grateful to be sober. And my sobriety date is May 16th of 1999. My home group is uh, the Hickory Hill Group. In Memphis, Tennessee, we meet Tuesday nights and Saturday nights at 8 p.m. So if you're ever in Memphis and you're looking for a meeting, uh, my name's Jason Battles, and I'm in the phone book. Call me, and we'll go to a meeting, or I'll tell you how to get to one. And that, that's been my experience with Alcoholics Anonymous, that sometimes we can be too anonymous inside the program. And I've known people for going on 10 years, and I can't tell you their last name. I, I really don't know anyone's last name. Uh, Sometimes I don't even know their first name, but I, I know their faces. Uh, and, you know, that's been a big thing the longer that I stay sober is when things happen and people, when we're looking for one another, sometimes it's hard to find each other. Um, I, I don't know what most, you know, young speakers do. Uh, I, I'm a real bad critic. I'm a real bad speaker critic. And... Uh, I can't stand it when people talk for 55 minutes about their drunk log and then say they're grateful to be sober. So I, I'm going to skip through mine really fast. And, uh, you know, if, if I wasn't an alcoholic, I wouldn't be here. So I, I really don't feel the need to qualify that much. Uh, I, I've been sober a little over three times longer than I ever drank. So hopefully I can talk about my sobriety for about three times longer than I talk about what it was like when I drank. That's the goal. And, uh, you know, I definitely qualify for this program genetically. I come from a long line of distinguished alcoholics. And I thought that's what made me an alcoholic is because my parents were and my grandparents were. And uh, coming to AA, I, I came to realize that I'm an alcoholic because I put alcohol in my body. No one ever forced me to. You know, I, I was... Uh, you know, they talk about victims and volunteers. 
my entire, uh, I wouldn't call it drinking career. It's more of like a drinking internship. <laughs> it was, it was real short, and I didn't, I didn't get a whole lot out of it. You know that that's, and I think most young people are like that. Uh, so. Anyway, nobody ever made me drink. I, I was definitely a volunteer, and that's the way I've tried to be through uh, through my sobriety. Because I've heard in here, and I firmly believe that uh, that victims get drunk. Um, so anyway, I uh, growing up, you know, I'm from a small town in Arkansas. Nothing really traumatic ever happened to me. Nothing bad happened to me. Uh, I was just like I've heard in here, and I could really relate when people talked about feeling uncomfortable and and just being uh, being uncomfortable. Something didn't sit right with me, and it was that way for as long as I can ever remember. And I, I think that that I was born with all of the isms, and all I needed to do was add alcohol, and there, you know, I had alcoholism. Um, but growing up, you know, things were fine. I have two sisters. We're all very close. We're less than a year apart. So we're we're very close. Um, but grew up, you know, my my father was a workaholic and an alcoholic. My mother was there, but not there at the same time. Uh, but, you know, nothing traumatic happened that I can really point my finger on that turned me into an alcoholic as a child. Uh my my parents got divorced at a young age. I think I was I was I don't know seven eight, and that was probably about the most traumatic thing that's ever happened to me. And when the book talks about Jekyll and Hyde, that's where I learned from a very early age how to manipulate people, how to play one person against the other person to get what I want. Uh, and you know I just kind of honed those skills as I grew up as an alcoholic, and I think. You know, that that's what most of us do. And I saw other people do it, and I just kind of mimicked and parroted their behavior. Um, but growing up, I had these two separate lives, just like I did when I was drinking. And I would stay with uh, my mother half the week, and it was like leave it to beaver. Dinner on the table, 6 p.m. every night, rules, consistency, things that, you know, children need. I, I had all that, say, Monday through Thursday night. And then Thursday night I would go to my father's house, and it was like party time. Even even as a little kid, you know, there were no rules, no regulation, no consistency. And I learned, you know, from this early age that uh, that that I, I can basically do what I want, and I can tell one parent one thing and tell the other parent one thing, and you know, just just make my own way. And this, you know, continued for years, and I did fine in school, and everything was okay. And uh, you know, I had a, I had a car, and I drove, you know, at like, I don't know, age twelve ish, and I don't know if that's normal, but I, I couldn't do that in my normal life, but I could do it in my crazy life on the weekends, you know. And I was always volunteering to go to the store to get my dad cigarettes or whatever, you know, when it was. Just like when you get your license and you're always willing to go to the store, um, and in the small town that I grew up in, you know my my father's a prominent doctor and everyone knows everyone. So if I ever got in trouble, 
the police would just bring me home, kind of like they do on Andy Griffith, where they just kind of drop you off the front door and they go talk to your parents. And so th- that started to happen right before I started drinking. And you know, I didn't really start drinking until I was uh, I was a sophomore in high school. I was 16 years old, and man, I can remember it like everybody talks about remembering their first drink. Of course, I was with older kids and could always relate to them. And uh, I went and I just did everything all in one night. I drank, I did drugs, I smoked, and I had sex. It was like the Big Bang. And, <laughs> and it was it was great. It was great. And I, I remember uh, those like Nancy Reagan just say no to drugs commercials, and I was thinking like. Oh no! Am I going to be homeless living on the streets? And you know, I could remember all those commercials. So you know, they worked to some extent. They just didn't work that well. Uh, and you know, I, I was off to the races. And just like everyone in here says that uh, something magical happened. I put alcohol in my body, and something happened. And you know, I got sick, and it, it was great. And I couldn't wait to do it again. And you know, I wasn't. Uh, an all-day, everyday drinker, being at this conference and seeing so many young people and teenagers, young teenagers, it's nice to be able to find people to relate to. Uh, Alcohol just was not accessible. You know, I lived, I I was an underage alcoholic in a dry county. (laughs) So they did not serve alcohol in my county. I had to go 45 minutes down the interstate to try to profile some guy in the parking lot <laughs> to see if he would buy me beer. And we called it just, you know, we called it pulling a hey mister. And we'd go, hey mister, will you buy us some beer? And he'd think, sure. And we'd give him this list, like a scroll. <laughs> we'd just pull it out and we'd give him hundreds of dollars. And he just, you know, generally the guy we profiled, you know, he was cool if we bought his. I don't know, Mad Dog or whatever he got. Uh, so he would have like a $2 purchase out of our $200 purchase. But we would just get as much alcohol as we could just because it was so difficult. And, uh, you know, the fact that there were only two liquor stores, one on either side of the interstate. My friend's dad owned one, so we couldn't go to that one. So, I mean, so the options were limited. But, you know, I, I was willing to go to any length any length to drink alcohol and to change the way that I felt. And I I didn't know that at the time, but, you know, it was true. And through high school, uh, again, you know, I was leading the double lives and I was a really good student and I was, you know, on all these committees and the president and the band and did all these things and drinking and getting high every weekend. And that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and I, I didn't think that it was uh, abnormal. And like most alcoholics I've met, you know, I surrounded myself with people who were worse than me. So I really didn't look that bad compared to my buddies. And uh, looking back, you know, I'm really grateful that I survived my teenage years and lived through them. Uh, so, you know, being in this small town, uh, we had access to a lot of dynamite. And... <laughs> I have all my fingers and all my toes, and, you know, people were blowing things up, and uh, it was just, it was, it was like Duke's, and it was like Duke's a hazard. That's what it was like. Uh, rampant cars, and 
just things that teenagers do that I thought was completely normal. That apparently it is not very normal. Uh, maybe for those of us in here. Uh, anyway, I went through high school. Everything was fine. But you know, alcohol was continuing to take a more important part of my life. And I, I was less and less concerned with my family. I was less concerned with girls. I was less concerned with everything except alcohol. And it was most important. And I, I really didn't... It's not that I didn't want to have a real serious girlfriend. It's just that I couldn't. I didn't have time for it. I had alcohol. That was all that I needed. And I eventually, you know, went off to college, and I, I could have gone to any college I wanted to, and I picked this small private college. And my older sister actually um, went to the same school. And the dynamics of our family, you know, she's the angel. She's never drank. She's never did drugs. She's probably one of the best people I've ever met in my life. I don't know how she, I think she might be adopted or something. But I don't know how she fits in. She's definitely not an alcoholic. Then there's me in the middle. I'm a little of both. And then there's my younger sister. She's kind of the rowdy one. Um, so we kind of have, you know, the full spectrum like we do here in AA. Um, anyway, all these people that knew my older sister, Jenny, uh, thought that I was going to be just like her. And we, and I, I tried. I tried my hardest to, uh, to be that good person who was polite and maybe at least acted like they went to church and, you know, <laughs> was a good person. I, I tried. And we had this orientation trip and, you know, I went and all the people already knew me because it was such a small school through my sister. And I showed up and I, I tried to be good. And I managed for like a day. And I, I met this girl. And I had been at college for uh, probably about two hours, Maybe. And I met this girl, and I just instantly fell in love. And it was just like she was exactly what I had been looking for as an 18-year-old kid. She was an alcoholic, drug addict, nymphomaniac. <laughs> and I was like, I have, I have arrived. <laughs> and on day two of college, she moved in with me <laughs> and, and my roommate into our dorm room. And uh, it was it was crazy. It was those in, intense alcoholic relationships that you know some of us get pulled into, and it was madness, and it was over in 90 days. Uh, but it was yeah, it was a blast. <laughs> it was it was what I thought college was. And you know the crazy thing about this college, it was extremely liberal, and and they had this alcohol policy. And at the time, it was just the most stringent thing I'd ever heard of. It was, uh, this was the whole policy. Put your alcohol in a cup with a lid. That's it. That's the whole policy. <laughs> cup, lid. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. <laughs> and if you got in trouble with alcohol, it was a $50 fine. And I think I amassed about $3,000 worth of fines in my first semester. <laughs> I just couldn't cu cup lid, just couldn't do it, and uh, and you know that that's that's not normal, and, and I thought that it was okay. You know, I thought they were just cracking down on me. They were just, it was circumstances, like it talks about in the book. If this was different, then that would be different, and you know, on and on. And it was never my fault. It was always everyone else's fault, and all these things, and. Anyway, my, my drinking was, was seriously progressing. And 
I did okay my first year of school. I don't know. I pulled out like a three-point or something. I don't know how. And I went back home, and uh, again, alcohol was becoming more important than my friends and my family than than anyone. And I went back for my second year of school. I guess it was 19 years old, 18, 19. And uh, by this time, you know, we we had this crazy schedule. We had like a we went to class Monday, Tuesday. We were off on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. You know, so to an alcoholic, party Thursday night, party Friday night, party Saturday night. Recover Sunday, recover Monday. Got a party Tuesday night because we're off on Wednesday. Recover Wednesday. So I was binge drinking, blackout drinking, uh, at least four or five nights a week consistently. And I I thought that was okay because there were those two nights in between that I could kind of, you know, make myself feel okay. And just alcohol was, was... was the most important thing in my life and and I didn't even notice and and that's it that's my drunk log Uh, now moving on to what happened I uh, I had this roommate this randomly assigned roommate um, who was I I hope this guy's found his way to Alcoholics Anonymous and I, I don't know if you can be a marijuana addict but if you can this guy was it uh, and uh, he he was a big guy, and we had you know dorm rooms had these tiny little bunk beds, and um, he, he couldn't get in the bunk bed, so he he slept in this recliner, <laughs> and uh, he lived in that recliner. And my my younger sister had come up to party with us, you know, probably four or five times, had never seen the guy outside of the recliner, <laughs> ever. Uh, so anyway, this guy would just sit in there and smoke pot all day and and never left the room and you know would have like food delivered in uh, and you know in here we t- we talk about uh, a moment of clarity and God wasn't a part of my life before I came to AA and when I said alcohol was the most important thing in my life it really was it was big enough that I didn't have to uh, I didn't have to pray. I had alcohol. I didn't have to think about God. I had alcohol. It did everything for me that I needed. I didn't really even need other people. I just needed alcohol. And, you know, we, we were in our, our tiny little dorm room, and uh, I was going to get alcohol. And it was, uh, it was the day before school was out. So one more day of school, and then Christmas break. This was in, um, I don't know, December 1998. And I was going to get more alcohol and more drugs and and this thought came to me like a like a lightning bolt that if I go and get all these things I'm going to get busted and I had never had that you know I'd been paranoid and stuff but I'd never had that clarity of thought like that and I just brushed it off like I brushed it off those thousands of times that had happened before you know times when I shouldn't have been alive and I was alive um I went and I got all these things and I brought them back to our little dorm room and, you know, with all the superintendents and all the people that would give me all the little alcohol fines were all standing outside the room. I thought, this is strange. And I tried to put my key in the door and it didn't work. And they all came up and they said, Mr. Battles, uh, your key doesn't work because we've changed your locks. I thought, oh, that's not good. <laughs> and uh, he said, I, I want you to sit down uh, right here. I'm going to go get some people. 
and you know I had all these all this alcohol and drugs on me, and I was just I was so paranoid. So what did I do? I ran over to my neighbor's room and asked him if he could hold on to this momentarily, <laughs> and came back and you know it was a private school and they didn't call the police and the guy said you know if you're cooperative with us and give us whatever you have uh, then we won't call the authorities and so we were very cooperative and you know they just pulled trash bags and trash bags out of our uh, dorm room of you know alcohol and drugs and all these things we weren't supposed to have at school and my instant reaction was to blame everything on him and I, I just had this great idea, you know, like we do. How can I get myself out of this? Well, here's two great ideas. You know, number one, I'll blame my roommate for everything. And number two, I'll tell everybody that I'm an alcoholic and that I need help. And, yeah, I thought it was a great idea at the time. And, and that, that would be retribution enough for all these things I had done. I'd probably seen it on TV or something. But, uh, all these people come around them and, you know, do their little intervention or hugging or something. And, uh, you know, I, so I told everyone this at school, and they said, well, great, we'll get you some help. I thought, no, I don't want any help. Uh, so they, they, you know, made me, they said, you're kicked off campus temporarily. Since it was the last day of school, I'm like, what can they do? Um, so I went home, and it was Christmas break, and I... I went home and I was on break and uh, I was trying not to tell my parents this secret, the biggest secret of my entire life. And I didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, I managed to, to hold it in for a couple weeks like we do. And finally, I, uh, I had another great idea. And I thought, you know, I, I'm going to, I have to tell my parents. So I decided that I would go to my mother and I'd tell her and I'd say, I, I got this terrible thing that I have to tell you. It's terrible. Uh, but I can't tell you right now. Uh, and then I went and told my father and I said the exact same thing. Oh, it's terrible. I told mom and uh, we, we need to meet at your house tomorrow. And I gave him a whole night to just, just mull it over and uh, really come up with some awful things. And by the time they came together the next day, uh, you know, I told them I got in trouble at school and I got caught with alcohol and drugs. And they were like, that's it? You know, because they had invented, like we do with this magic magnifying mind, all these horrible things. And uh, I said, well, good. We want you to stop drinking and doing drugs. And, you know, I, I tried. And I, I'm real grateful that I've had that experience before I came here because I realized that I can't get sober on my own and I can't stay sober on my own. And it was the most miserable month. I managed to stay sober for a month. And I wanted to die every single day. And every day was worse than the day before. And I thought I could do it, and I just couldn't. And like our book says, you know, some trivial reason came along, and I just said, you know, screw it. Let's go drink. And I remember going uh, to somebody's house, and I started drinking. And the moment I started, I didn't want to anymore. And, you know, I started feeling that feeling, and I wanted it to go away. And it was my birthday. And all these people were coming over to my house. And I had started, and I couldn't stop. And, uh, you know, I had to go act, play that game with my family like I was okay. And, uh, you know, from then on, I was off to the races. And I thought my family didn't know. And in that, you know, brief month period, I had started getting a little clarity uh, coming out of that fog. And instantly, it was gone. And when the book talks about 
you know, after this brief period of sobriety, if we drink again, it gets worse, never better. And I firmly believe that. And I truly picked up right where I left off. And granted, it was only a month, but that was the longest I'd ever been sober since I had started drinking. And uh, I really believe in the fatalness of this disease. And anyway, I kept drinking for, I don't know, a month or two, and I was pretty messed up the whole time. And uh, my parents pulled that trick on me that I pulled on them. And I came over, and my dad showed up, and my mom showed up, and I thought, oh, no, something happened. It's terrible. And uh, they said, you know, we know you've been drinking, and we want you to go to treatment. And this was Friday, May 14th. And uh, I just said okay, because I, I couldn't do it any longer. And, you know, I wasn't sure that I was an alcoholic. I thought that I was depressed. And, you know, if you take a solution away from an alcoholic, we are depressed. Because I didn't have anything else to put in myself to make me okay. Um, and, you know, I had this other great idea. And I, I told my parents, uh, they said, well, the treatment center's not uh, intaking, admitting new patients till Sunday. And this was Friday, and I said, great, I'll be back on Sunday. <laughs> and, you know, I'm real grateful for that because uh, I know a lot of young kids that get jerked into treatment straight off the bus or wherever, you know, however they get home from school. And uh, <laughs> that, that didn't happen to me. And I, I had an entire weekend to go drink and do drugs like it was the second and last time that I was ever going to do them again. And I did. And I went back to that college on Friday night uh, that I had been suspended from, and uh, I drank like it was the second to last time I was ever going to. And I met this girl, and we were going off somewhere, I don't know. And I was a blackout drinker, and that was my favorite thing about drinking. And I called it time travel. Because I, I would be here, and I would start drinking, and I would wind up in another city or another state or another place and have no idea how it got there. And I think when you're a teenager, maybe it's fun. But once, you know, I hear people in Alcoholics Anonymous talk about what it's like when they have children and responsibilities, and it doesn't sound so fun. Uh, but for me, it was fun. Uh, and I remember distinctly, you know, I went off with this girl, and the next day I woke up on a couch somewhere. And I didn't know where I was, and I didn't know who I was, and I didn't know where my car was, and I didn't know anything. And just for some reason, it struck me, this is abnormal. Normal people don't do this. And I just shook it off like I always did. And I went, uh, went back home, and it was high school graduation night. And this was the last time that I had a drink. And I was drinking like it was the last time I was ever going to drink. And, uh, and I did, and I had fun. And uh, my buddies dropped me off at my house, and they said, hey, we'll come by and get you tomorrow. And I said, no, you won't. I'm going to treatment. And uh, they were really surprised because I, you know, I didn't, I didn't tell anybody. And I, I learned from an early age: don't ever tell anybody what's really going on with you, because they might be able to use that against you. Uh, so I never did. And anyway, I woke up the next day and I went to treatment. And I, I, I stayed inpatient for three days, you know. And I just like a good alcoholic, I was really, uh, I was really offended that they tried to take my shoelaces away and they wouldn't let me have my little razor to shave. And, you know, I, I think being so young and being a teenager, you know, I didn't, have, uh, I didn't have any DTs. I just, I was fine physically. I didn't have any problems. I just, I had a tough time sleeping, you know, for a night or two. But I definitely was not an alcoholic. 
and I, you know, was over 18, so I was in the adult treatment center, and I looked around, and I thought, God, these people have problems. <laughs> and, you know, looking back now, they were where I would have been a few years later. I just couldn't see it at the time. And, you know, the miracle happened when this man from Alcoholics Anonymous showed up. And he was about my age now, and he was dressed in a suit, and he was smiling, and he was laughing. And something was going on with that guy. And uh, he came in, and he told his story. And he carried the message like we do in here. And he said, uh, that that's where I had my moment of clarity. And he said, you know, when I was in college, I thought I would drink up to this point. They tell him 25, and then I graduate college, and I would stop. I would get that job, and I would stop. I would get married, and I would stop or moderate. Uh, and then, you know, it's that progression. And I had told myself all those things. When this happens, I'll stop or moderate. When this happens, I'll stop or moderate. And he, and he told his story, and he, and he told the progression, and I saw myself doing those things. And it just cracked the door just that much. And I thought, well, maybe I can be an alcoholic. Maybe I qualify. Probably not, but maybe. (laughs) And uh, that was enough willingness, this man from Alcoholics Anonymous telling me his story, to to make me decide to stick around for uh, a 90-day outpatient treatment. And, uh, you know, it was probably the most willing I've ever been in my sobriety. I got up every day at like 4 or 5 a.m. and drove to Little Rock about an hour and a half away and did treatment for like eight hours. Drove home, went to a meeting, you know, and rinse and repeat. And I did that every single day for 90 days. And and then somewhere along the lines, I had, uh, you know, I had auditioned to this music school at Memphis. Uh, I'd never really been to Memphis. And, uh, uh, I graduated, I love that word, I graduated treatment. And what I really did is I graduated to Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, I moved to Memphis. And I, I remember distinctly, you know, I was driving in my little car. I had it packed up with all my belongings. I took a wrong turn, and I was in this really shady area downtown. And uh, I saw all these cop cars, and I thought, oh, at this gas station. I thought, oh, that's a great place. I'll pull over and ask these guys. Because uh, I wasn't afraid anymore. I had a little glimpse of that freedom. And uh, apparently somebody had just gotten murdered. And they were like, they told me, uh, get in your car, roll up your windows, and go, just drive straight. and Don't stop. And I, I just thought, oh, my God, wow, this is where I'm going to be living. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I lived in the dorms, and I, I stayed sober. And it's possible to go to college or to return to college and live in the dorms and stay sober. And at that time, you know, I, I was I was willing, and I knew you needed to get a sponsor. And I found this meeting uh, real close to the university, and I, I started showing up. And it was this meeting called the NAB Group, New Action Beginners. Man, it was scary. <laughs> but you know, the blessing of being new in sobriety is I didn't know that it was scary. I just thought that's what AA was. <laughs> and people were nice, and they reached out to me, and all that. I just. Uh, I just couldn't really relate to a bunch of 50-year-old steel workers. Uh, and it's not to say they didn't do what we do in AA. You know, I think when we're, we're a special group of people, and that's why conferences like this are so important, to show other young people that it's possible to get sober and to stay sober and that you're not alone. And there weren't a lot of young people in Memphis 
or there wasn't a lot of unity. Maybe they were dispersed. I don't know, 10 years ago there weren't a whole lot. Uh, but there were enough to have conferences like this. And, uh, you know, it's thanks to the people that had gone before us and helped us out because we definitely couldn't have done it on our own. But anyway, I, I went to a lot of meetings and I asked this guy to be my sponsor. He was kind of young looking. And, uh, you know, come to find out he hadn't really worked the steps. And it was, a, it was a real hard time in my sobriety because I was doing everything I was supposed to be doing. And I went to class all day, every day, and I made straight A's. And I was miserable. Because just because I was coming to meetings didn't mean that I was getting any better. I just wasn't likely getting any worse. I hadn't started working the steps yet. And one day I was sitting locked up in my little dorm room. And uh, I only knew two roads in Memphis. I knew Poplar and I knew Perkins. And uh, <laughs> if you know those roads, that like connects to everything. Uh, and I saw this meeting. It was called Serenity. And it was right at the corner, basically, at Poplar and Perkins. And I thought, you know, I've heard that word before, serenity. I think I need some of that. And uh, I went up there, and it, it changed my life because it was, it was a true AA meeting. And people reached out their hands, and they said, we're glad you're here. Welcome. Come sit by us. Would you like some coffee? Doing all the things that we do in here. And they also razzed me a little, you know, like the old-timers do. And, uh, you know, I came to find out that they do that out of love. And also... Uh, they didn't necessarily accept me automatically. They accepted me as an alcoholic, but they wanted to see if I was going to come back before they really put any effort into me because there were other people there that may have been more willing than me. And uh, Anyway, I, I met a lot of sober, long-time members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and this guy was really talking to me a lot, and it was the first time that anyone had ever reached their hand out and made me feel welcome. And it was a big deal. It was a real big deal. Uh, and after the meeting, he invited me out for coffee and donuts. And, uh, you know, as trivial as that sounds, it was the biggest thing that had happened to my sobriety up to that point. No one had invited me to anything. And uh, I definitely didn't feel part of. You know, I went out and started talking to this guy. And he looked really old, but he had, like, some cool shoes on or something. You know, come to find out, he was eight or nine years older than me. He just had really gray hair and looked old. Um, excuse me. So anyway, we went out and I asked him to be my sponsor, and I felt this love of AA that we have in here. And uh, we started working the steps. And I would go to his house, and we would sit in his driveway in lawn chairs and read the book. And I really believe, like it talks about, that when one alcoholic meets with another alcoholic and shares experience, strength, and hope, that that's when recovery begins. And that's when it began for me. And we sat out in his driveway for, I don't know, a couple months. And I thought that's what you did in AA. But apparently that's not what you do in AA. And, uh, you know, this about a year or two prior to this, uh, he was sponsoring a young guy in AA who, uh, you know, had a mental break and shot some people and killed him in AA. And uh, I didn't know that we were sitting out in the driveway because he didn't want to bring me into my home because he didn't know me well enough. And uh, I, I learned very quickly that just because people are in these rooms doesn't mean they want to get better. And, you know, I've met the best people I've ever met in my life in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I've also met some of the craziest. Uh, so now when I meet people, I... Uh, 
I'm a little more cautious. And it's just, uh, it's just from my experience. Um, so anyway, sorry to be morbid there. Uh, we continued to work the steps and uh, something started happening. And like when I drank, something happened. When I read the book, something happened. And I think what was most important for me is, is the freedoms that we grant one another in Alcoholics Anonymous that you might not think about. Like the freedom to, uh, for me to say that I'm an alcoholic or not. That no one forces me to make that decision. And I found all that stuff in the book. And we started reading through. And we read every single page. We read the foreword and the preface and the doctor's opinion and Bill's story and there's a solution and so on. Uh, and, and what I found in there was, was amazing. This book spoke to me like nothing else ever did. And the concept... Up to that point, I would identify as an alcoholic, but I don't know if I really believed it. And people told me that uh, maybe you're not an alcoholic. Maybe you're just a problem drinker. And if drinking is causing you problems in your life, then maybe it's a problem. Stay around. Come back and find out what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you want to be a part of it, you're welcome to. And... uh, That was kind of that open-door policy that we have here, and it was very beneficial for me. We started reading the book, and in the doctor's opinion, it talked about the the allergy and the phenomenon of craving, and that that's what makes me an alcoholic, is when I put alcohol into my body, it causes the phenomenon of craving, and I cannot stop. And that's what makes me an alcoholic, and that's what differentiates me from people who are non-alcoholic. It doesn't have anything to do with how much money I have or how much education or how much my parents have or any of that. When I drink, something happens. And that's simple. That's black and white. And when I drink, something happened. And I said, well, maybe I am an alcoholic. Maybe I do qualify for this program. And uh, that was really important for me to realize because I was so busy looking in the meetings at everyone's outsides and... I hadn't lost a job or a car or a house or a wife. I didn't have any of those things to lose. And when I got into the book, I saw, I found the solution. And the secret is hidden in the book. And I had to get a sponsor to show me where all that stuff is. And I had read through the book. I just couldn't understand it. And I needed someone to explain it to me from their own experience. And, you know, one of the other greatest freedoms, and it's early in the book, it's on page 12, and it's when uh, Ebby and Bill meet, and they're talking, and Ebby says, you know, why don't you choose your own conception of God? However limited that it may be, just use that as a starting point, and you can grow from there. And no one had ever presented the God concept or idea like that to me, and no one had ever asked what I thought about God. I had just always seen people tell me what I should believe about God. And here in AA, black and white in the pages, my sponsor asked me, what do you think about God? What has your experience shown you? And I rattled off a few things. And, you know, I I think that's one of the greatest freedoms that we allow in here is the ability to start right where we are. And he told me that, you know, everything you need to know about God right now, and it's enough to keep you sober and it's enough to get you sober. And, you know, that was really empowering because I thought that I had to be a better person or I had to do different things. And when I came into AA, 
and uh, I heard people saying God and motherfucker in the same sentence, <laughs> I realized that the hoop is pretty large. <laughs> and it talks about that in the 12 and 12. And it's broad and roomy and all-inclusive. And that's what AA is too. You know, and I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And I, my sponsor was talking about his concept of God, and I don't remember what it was, but it was comforting. And he said, if you don't have one, you can borrow mine until you get your own. Or, you know, the things that I hear and hear, good orderly direction. Use the group. And, you know, one of the things, I don't hear it as much anymore, but I used to hear it, that uh, if you have a problem with God, just use the doorknob. And, you know, I really disagree with that because uh, it says take your own conception, however limited it is. And uh, it doesn't say invent a God. Because if I invented a God, it would probably look a lot like me and do whatever I wanted to do. And that's what I did before I got sober. And going through and, you know, coming up with this conception and believing that uh, whatever I came up with was enough to keep me sober and help me get sober and keep me sober. And, uh, you know, go moving a little forward to step three, I just started praying and my sponsor asked me to find a guy that I could talk to. And uh, it was simple. And I, I really didn't know how to pray. And my sponsor said, well, why don't you ask God to relieve you of the desire to stop drinking? I had never thought about that, ever. And, you know, I still pray that prayer every day. And most times throughout the day when something happens, I just say, God, please help me. And I fill in the blank. And uh, it's, it works. It really does. And probably one of the most important things I did in my sobriety is I went through and uh, I did a four-step. And I was terrified of the four-step. And I'd heard all these rumors about it. And I think most of them are started by people who have never done one. Because <laughs> it, it, it's very simple. You know, I make three columns. Who I'm resentful at, what they did to me, what it affected and then I add this extra column and say, what I did to them. You know, that's the resentments. And then I write down all my fears. And in those resentments, you know, I look at people, principles, and institutions. And as an alcoholic, I came here and I hated people. And I hated inanimate objects. I hated schools and I hated police departments. I hated all these things. And uh, I was just eaten up with resentment. And I wrote all that stuff down on paper, and I started looking at my own behavior, taking an honest look. And, you know, what I found is uh, that, that on the balance, I, I did worse things to people than they ever thought about doing to me. And I definitely wasn't the kind of person that I wanted to be. And I looked at all my fears, and we boiled them down, and I realized I just had a couple. And that long list wasn't so long. And then I looked at my sex conduct, and I looked where I was selfish, inconsiderate, dishonest, where I aroused jealousy, bitterness, anger. And basically, I just sum it up as uh, what I did that was shitty and what I would have done if I was a decent person. And that's it. That's it, folks. That's the whole four set. And I wrote all that stuff down, and I was as honest and thorough as I was capable of being. And I took it to my sponsor, and... Uh, we had met throughout the process, so it wasn't so scary. 
And we, we went over all of that. And I thought, you know, whew, we're finished. And he took his piece of paper out and he wrote something on it and he slid it across the table. And I picked it up and I looked at it at the top and it said, Secrets. And my heart just sank. Because I thought, shit, how does he know? <laughs> and uh, he knows because his sponsor did that to him. Uh, and he said, I want you to write down on this piece of paper what you didn't put in that inventory and what you were planning on not telling me. And I wrote it down and I slid it back across the table at him. And uh, and that was that. And, you know, it, it's been my experience that uh, that there's always something on somebody's sheet of paper and it's always sex-related. And that's the stuff that keeps us sick and that's the stuff that takes us out to drink or keeps us in fear of ever doing an inventory or a four-step. You know, and I've been privileged enough to do a lot of fifth steps with a lot of different guys. And I've never heard anything new and unique. You know, we're not a very unique group of people. (laughs) We think we are, but we're really not. Uh, And it was the first time in my life I ever felt a part of Alcoholics Anonymous because I actually did some work that a lot of people just don't do. And I, I felt that I earned my chair, not through my drinking, but through my actions that I deserve to be here. And, you know, I think some of the best promises are in the book, are the fifth step promises. And it talks about being able to hold your head up and look the world in the eyes and feel the nearness of our Creator. And that's what happened to me. Not instantly. When I finished, I felt terrible. And I felt terrible because it was the first time I ever took an honest look at my behavior. And in black and white, I saw what kind of person I was. And it talks about in the resentments, fancied or real. So I can hate people for things they didn't even do to me. And uh, looking at that stuff, you know, it, it painted a very clear picture of, of who I was at the time. And I was as earnest as I had ever been about not wanting to be that way anymore. And we continued to read the book. And, you know, that's what 6 and 7 helped me do. And this lady, you know, it's amazing the things we hear in Alcoholics Anonymous and whose mouth it comes out of. And I thought, you know, I'd been to all these schools and I knew all these things. I remember this lady, she had probably like a third or fourth grade education. And uh, we were talking about shortcomings. And I didn't know what they were. And she said, you know, she believed that shortcomings were when you had too much of me, and not enough God. And that, that made sense to me. You know, that made a lot of sense to me. And I could look at my life and see where I had too much of me and not enough God. And, you know, I took my inventory. And I know a lot of people burn it or I don't know what they do with it. My sponsor said, hold on to that. That's your eighth step. And, uh, you know, being a little lazy, I didn't, uh, I didn't want to do that again. So I held on to it. And, uh, you know, I'm really grateful that I had a sponsor and that he cautioned me about trying to go make amends to people too soon. And I've seen a lot of people get drunk when they come into the program and we think we're doing better and we want to go tell everybody how sorry we are. And, you know, the reason that it's two-thirds of the way through is because I might not be prepared for what someone is going to tell me if I go do that too soon. And, you know, I'm real grateful that uh, I was a young person when I did it because I just wasn't out there long enough to do that much damage. And I sat with my sponsor, and I, I selfishly wanted to go to every one of those people and tell them how sorry I was. 
for things that I had done five or ten years earlier when, you know, they didn't probably remember who I was. And we checked people off the list where it may cause more harm. And, you know, sometimes that was difficult. And I, I learned that some of the best amends that I can make is never to reappear in that person's life again, that they would be better off not ever seeing me again. And I just wanted to run to these girls and tell them how sorry I was for whatever happened. You know, and I realized that uh, selfishly I, I could have caused harm. And that's why I have a sponsor. And that's why we check those people off the list. You know, right around this time I started, uh, this guy was like 14 or 15, started coming around the meetings. And he asked me to be a sponsor. And, you know, I was terrified. And I, I didn't know what to do. And, you know, I went and asked my sponsor and, uh, you know, one of the most important things I left out is uh, he gave me six things to do on a daily basis. This was like from day one. I don't know. He's going to kill me for not remembering that. Uh, and he said, if you do these six things every day, you won't have to get drink. You won't have to get drunk. And your life will get better. And they're real simple. And he said, take out your big book and write it on the first page because uh, that's, you know, a blank page. Uh, and they're, they're simple. It's don't drink. Go to meetings, pray, read the book, call three alcoholics a day, and number six is ask questions because sometimes I think I know everything. And most alcoholics, I think, get those five, maybe four. Uh, for him and for me, I needed number six. And uh, I started doing those things every day. And when this guy asked me to sponsor him, I, uh, I called my sponsor and said, you know, what do I do? He said, well, you take them and you have them open this book and you write down those six things. And you start reading the book just like I read with you. And you don't have to tell them anything that you didn't do and you don't have to make things up. And if you didn't do it to get sober and to stay sober, then he doesn't have to do it. And, you know, it's pretty simple. I just tell people right where I am. And, you know, that's amazing. I started carting this little guy around and we'd go to all these meetings. I was so proud to have a little sponsor. And... Uh, I don't. I don't think that's the point of it. But uh, you know, I was. I was. I was proud, and uh, you know, I'm really grateful that I've sponsored a lot of guys over the years. And uh, you know, most of them aren't sober. And I used to really beat myself up for that and feel that it was my fault. And uh, you know, I've realized that uh, I have a hundred percent success rate in sponsorship. I've stayed sober the entire time, and uh, I heard people say that in here, and I, and I believe it. And, you know, occasionally I would think about doing these wacky California things that I hear people do and, or, you know, I don't know, things that I never had to do. And I would, I would run it past my sponsor, and he would say, did you do that? And I would tell him no. He said, why the hell do you think that someone else needs to do that? If what I did worked with you, then likely it will work with someone else. And, you know, that's the miracle of this program is I don't have to be unique, I don't have to reinvent myself, and most importantly, I don't have to reinvent the program. It works just fine, just the way it is. And uh, I'm grateful for that. And, you know, one of the other big components of my sobriety has always been service work. And I believe, you know, in the uh, three legacies of this program, unity, service, and recovery. And, you know, the steps for me were the recovery. And meeting up with people and going to meetings and doing all the things we do, that's the unity portion. But the piece that was lacking was the service. And around this time, I had shown up to Tiki Paw, 
And I, I didn't know what it was. And I went to my first one in 2000 in Jackson. I was probably like nine or ten months sober. God, I was terrified. I was so terrified. And there were all these pretty girls, and I couldn't talk to any of them. And I felt like a bump on a log, and, and it was terrible. But it was also the greatest thing at the same time, all rolled into one. And uh, I remember people cutting up and laughing and being loud. and uh, It was amazing. I had never seen that many young people come together for the same purpose and to have fun. And, you know, it was my first AA dance to ever go to. And that was, that was interesting. And, you know, I, I felt really uncomfortable, and I couldn't get out there. And my sponsor pointed to that guy. And he said, look at that guy. And there's always that guy. And he was having fun. And he said, if that guy can do it, so can you. And that's where I learned how to dance in sobriety. I didn't know that it was possible. But apparently it's possible. And, you know, it was, it was fun. And that was the first time I, uh, I felt fired up about young people's AA. And the first time I'd actually really ever heard about it. And I, I went back home, and we put together this bid committee, and the people from Memphis had done the work, and they had won the conference. And we brought it back to Memphis, and uh, we had this huge bid committee. And anytime you get a bunch of alcoholics together to try to decide on something, uh, th- there are problems. And I, I got on the home, the host committee. And we started doing work, and we started having meetings, and and we had this sense of unity and love for one another. And that's where I learned about the traditions in service. Because sometimes it's hard to learn from the book if I can't apply my own experience. And any time I'd want to go do something in violation of the traditions, somebody would be there, and they would slap our hands, and they would say, you know, that's not what we do in here. And, uh, you know, one good example of that is what we had, everything went well, and... Uh, you know, I learned all this wonderful thing about AA, and we had our conference in 2001 in Memphis. And I, I remember just a month before, there had been some terrible wreck, and some teenage girl killed somebody on the interstate. And the news c- crew, when they did the media announcement earlier, that's what it made me think about. The news crew came to our conference, and they were interviewing people. If you ever inter- see people interviewed in AA, it's crazy. This is from the neck down. And uh, they asked this guy, this young guy, and they said... Uh, as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, what do you think we should do, blah, blah, blah? And he said, uh, you know, our tradition states that we have no opinion on outside issues. And I thought, oh, that's what that tradition means. <laughs> it's to see it in action. And that's where I learned about this stuff. Because if they had asked me, I would have told them exactly what I thought as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And... You know, God was working all along. They asked the, probably the one young person at the conference that could answer the question correctly. And uh, at the conference, or just right before, I got, I got elected to the advisory council. And I'll tell you, if you ever want to uh, trick an alcoholic into doing work, give it some important-sounding title, <laughs> like advisory council, chairperson, treasurer. You know, all the things that we do in here. Uh, that involved work. And it just sounded so cool and so prestigious. And, you know, I, I've learned that there is no power and there is no prestige in AA, that we don't have room for it, and that there is no hierarchy in AA, that it's, that it's one day at a time. And people that have been sober for a long time will tell you that. 
And uh, it took me a while to realize that because initially I thought that I was really cool and really important. Once we got in those 5 to 10 to 15 plus hour meetings, I realized that I was not really important and that uh, it was about love and service and unity and tolerance and patience and kindness and all the principles our book talks about. That's where I learned about these things. I didn't learn them from the book. I learned them from my own experience, screaming and yelling and crying in these committee meetings for years. And, you know, one of the things that I am uh, extremely grateful for and and extremely proud of is that, you know, when when I made that service commitment, it's a five-year service commitment. I had never done anything in my life for five years consistently ever. And uh, I showed up. And, you know, I actually, uh, I don't know if it's probably because I'm a glutton for punishment, I even stuck around for an extra sixth year. And uh, I'm grateful. You know, and every year I would come in, I'd be like, I hate you guys and this is terrible and I don't want to be here and I want to be at the conference having fun and I don't want to be sequestered in this room with all you people. (laughs) And by the end of it, you know, I was hugging people and telling them that I loved them. Because that's the process. And I learned about third legacy voting procedures and all this crazy cloak and dagger stuff. And if, if you want to know what that stuff is, you know, show up. Show up. And just like they told me when I was new in AA, you know, come and see what we do here and find out if you want to be a part of it. And, you know, that's exactly what I did. And I'm so grateful to be back at Tiki Paul. You know, my heart is so full of love for this conference. And, uh, you know, I I can tell you that my sobriety wouldn't be the same. I don't know if, you know, I I think it's a big statement to say I don't know whether or not I would be sober or not. But I don't know if my life would have the quality in it and the people in it if I hadn't been a part of what we do here. And the most amazing thing is this is only... You know, two days, two and a half maybe, out of the entire year. And the goal is to take the fire that we get here and bring it back to your local community. Start a young people's meeting. Reach out. Take the excitement. And I always think of coming to this conference like recharging my batteries, that I need to plug in to the heart of AA. And that's what this is for me. And, you know, I look forward to it every year. And if you guys haven't heard about the bid committee or the bid procedure or you don't know what that is, you know, stick around. I think they're having a meeting tonight after this sometime, and I'm sure someone will announce it, about how to bid for Tiki Paul and how to get it to your city. And I can tell you in the 27-year history of this conference, uh, this is the only year that... No one bid on the conference, and the advisory council actually had to put it on. So I'm real grateful that we're having a conference period this year because I needed this. I needed this a lot. And, uh, you know, this this is not necessarily for people who are new in sobriety because I I need this too. Um, So I'm I'm very grateful to be sober, and I'm very grateful for Tiki Paw. So thank you guys for uh, allowing me to be here. Thank you.